jump straight into our gospel passage this morning and introduce you to the two characters in the story that Jesus told. And I've asked Peter and Noah to help me. So first, on the left side, let's do it this way up. Okay, we have a rich man. I never, I never would have been a school teacher, my writing's terrible. <laughs> but there's a rich man. And Jesus said of him that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And that's all Jesus says. But in that brief little sketch, we actually get a lot of information about this man. So the fact that he wore clothing of purple and fine linen meant that he dressed as expensively as it was possible to dress. That was the finest kind of clothing there was around. So it's sort of the equivalent of saying that he, uh, he dressed in Valentino and Armani suits <laughs> every day. Um, and then he feasted sumptuously every day, Jesus says. And that's the sort of thing that nobody did at the time, unless you were either a king or you were part of the super rich, the super elite. So basically, this rich man over here, he isn't just rich. He isn't just ordinary rich. He is Forbes list rich. Okay? He is right at the top of the wealthy hierarchy. And he lives like a king. So here's our rich man over here. And I want to write down five things that are true about him from the way Jesus describes him. So the first thing is that he is comfortable. He lives in total luxury every day. Second, he's well cared for. This rich man takes very good care of himself. And he's well fed. Alright, um, next, he's very secure. We can say that he's secure. He's secure... Because he can uh, afford a house and guards and servants to keep him physically secure. But also, um, he has a secure place in society. Um, he has a place and a status. So someone with this kind of wealth is usually well-known and respected. And the final thing to say about him is that he's free. He's free. So this man has the kind of freedom that we love and cherish in America. He is financially independent, and he has upward mobility. He's free. Okay? Comfortable, well cared for, well fed, secure, and free. That's the first man. Now, here's the second man in the story. We have over here a poor man. Jesus said, At the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this second man is in a sorry state. It seems from what Jesus says that he's either lame or crippled, and he can't walk, because Jesus says in the text that he was laid at the rich man's gate, passive voice. So if this man's crippled and can't walk and can't work to earn his living, then he's reduced to begging. That's really his only choice left. So what happens is that his friends or family pick him up every day and carry him over to the rich man's gate and lay him down there in hopes that he'll find some mercy there. 
but it seems that he rarely does. He doesn't, he doesn't hope for very much, um, just the unwanted table scraps that fall from the rich man's table. And that's the kind of food that the dogs would eat. He'd be happy just to pick through the rich man's garbage. But it seems he doesn't even get to do that. So he's desperately hungry, and on top of his raging hunger, his whole body is covered in painful sores. And as he lies there, helpless on the side of the street, the dogs come up and lick his sores. It's horrible. Now, these dogs weren't pets. They weren't nice dogs. <laughs> Banish from your mind the clean, silky-coated golden retrievers you see in Tom Brown Park. These were wild dogs. They're street vermin. If you've ever been to... Uh, India or Malaysia, you might have seen these kind of dogs. Nasty, diseased, mangy creatures with open wounds and missing body parts. They come up and they lick this guy's sores, causing his sores to sting and burn. And the poor guy is too crippled or too weak even to fend the dogs away. So he's in a truly pitiable state. He's so hungry He'd eat dog food, but he's so helpless that he's becoming dog food. <laughs> so here he is over here, and compared with the five things that we said about this guy, the poor man is the total opposite. So the rich man was comfortable, the poor man is in agony. The rich man was well cared for. The poor man, what did I have, what word did I use against this? <laughs> Needy, that's a good word. The poor man is needy. The rich man's welfare, the poor man's hungry. The rich man is secure, but the poor man is vulnerable. And the rich man is free, but the poor man is trapped. He's so trapped. If he could choose, if he had a single choice in the world, he would choose to be absolutely anywhere other than the place that he is. But he doesn't have any choices. So that's the way Jesus sets up this story. And uh, before I go on, I want to notice the power of this setup. Because what Jesus has done here is to describe two extremes, right? Absolute extremes. The rich man isn't just rich, he has complete wealth. Jesus doesn't say exactly how much money he has, but it's enough to say that any more wouldn't make any real difference to his lifestyle. So he's as rich as rich can be, with all the comforts and luxuries that we associate with wealth. And the poor man has complete poverty. He's as poor as poor can be. Too poor to feed his hunger, too poor to heal his wounds, and too poor to do anything at all about his situation. So these two men right here represent two extremes of personal wealth and comfort. And so we can imagine them as the two ends, the two poles of the full spectrum of humanity in between. So everyone in this room and everyone we've ever met would fall somewhere here between them. So here am I, standing in between them, somewhere <laughs> near the middle. And I want you for a moment to imagine yourselves up here with me, somewhere on the spectrum between the rich man and the poor man, somewhere, I think, pretty close to where I am. And it doesn't really matter exactly where we are, 
Because the important thing is that we're all somewhere between these two guys. And while we have things set up like this, I want to ask this question. Which way are we facing? Which guy are we looking at? And I don't think any of us should pretend that we're not at least tempted to look towards this guy, the rich man. He wears nice clothes, and we like that. And he eats good food, and we like that. And he has comfort and security and freedom, and those are all things our hearts long for. So we're tempted to look at him. Maybe with some amount of envy, we want what he has, and we're wondering how we can get it. But I think we're also looking at him because we think that his wealth makes him important. So we care about what he has to say. We want to know him. We're happy to read about him in newspapers and magazines. Or even better, if we could be his friends, that would really be something. Don't we do that? I know I do. For example, on election night, I was watching a news station on my Roku player, and in the breaks, instead of commercials, they published selected posts from Twitter and Instagram. Uh, they were mostly posts from celebrities, and uh, I found that the most interesting part of the night. I was, I was watching, and I noticed myself taking an interest in what the celebrities were doing and thinking. Ooh, Anne Hathaway just voted. Ooh, Lady Gaga's feeling terribly nervous. Why do I care about that? I don't know these people. Why am I interested in what they think? Isn't that all part of the natural human interest in the rich man? I'm naturally <coughs> tempted to turn his way. But while we have it set like this, I want us to see that if we're facing this way, if we're looking at the rich man, then our back is to the poor man. That's right. So if our attention is on feeling envious for him and what he has, or if we're trying to get ourselves there, then we find we don't have any time or money or attention left for him. And if he comes to us and asks us for help, we're going to tell him we're too busy. And we don't have anything for him right now. And if we're absorbed with what he has to say because he's rich, then we're also uninterested in what he has to say because he's poor. But now think about the way Jesus behaved. When God came to earth, he placed himself a long way down the wealth spectrum. Most of the way down here toward the poor man. Jesus was essentially homeless during the last three years of his life. He traveled around relying on other people's hospitality. And on the day he died, it seems that he didn't own any property except the clothes he stood up in. So Jesus didn't spend his life casting an envious eye over here to the wealthy and powerful. And that left him free to look this way and to listen to the cries of the poor. And it's not that Jesus completely ignored the wealthy people during his ministry. He spoke the truth to Nicodemus, and, and he spoke grace to Zacchaeus, and healing to the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. And he had several dinners at the homes of the Pharisees. But we can say that most of his miracles were done for the poorest and sickest and most desperate members of society. And most of his teaching was to crowds of common people. I think we can say that Jesus showed a bias toward the poor, that his gaze was often in this direction. So in this story, did you notice that Jesus knows this man's name? Right. His name is Lazarus. He's a person. There's no mention of the other guy's name. He's just a rich man 
But this man is called Lazarus. And he has the honour of being the only person with a name in any of Jesus' stories or parables. His name is Lazarus. Okay, so that's the setup. That's how Jesus sets the story up. And now I want to look at what happens. And the answer is basically nothing at all happens in either of their lifetimes. Their wealth and poverty remain unchanged until the day they both die. But death comes to both of them, just like it will come to everyone in between. And it's only after death that the story turns. So verse 22 says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. The idea of being carried by angels to Abraham's side was a standard Jewish way of describing what happened to God's righteous people when they died. And that's what happens to one of the two men in the story. Only one of them. And it's not the rich man. After they both die, the story turns. Jesus brings about a great reversal in both their fortunes. So here, I'm going to take your boy and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to take your board. That's what happens, isn't it? Look, it's the rich man now who's in agony. He says in verse 24, I am in anguish in this flame. Now it's the rich man who's needy and hungry. He begs Abraham for a mere drop of water to cool his tongue. And now it's the rich man who's vulnerable to suffering. Now it's the rich man who's trapped. Abraham says, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And on the other hand, Lazarus is at Abraham's side. The Greek says literally, he came to Abraham's bosom. It's a strongly maternal image of comfort and care. Lazarus now has the comfort and the food and the security. He's the one who's where he wants to be and is finally free. So these two men both had a great reversal in their fortunes after they died. The first became last and the last first. Jesus comforted one and punished the other. Okay, it's very stark. Thanks, you two. You can sit down. I'm going to put these here. If you're in the front row, you can still see him. <laughs> okay, now, we come to the important question. We need to know why Jesus treated those two men differently. Isn't that critically important for us to know in the story? We need to know why. And particularly, was the rich man punished just because he was rich? And so if that's the case, can we extrapolate from this story and say that all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing to say? Because we can't say that. That is not what this story says. And that idea falls apart right away in this story. Because Abraham is the one standing in heaven at the center of this story as a righteous and a rewarded man, right? And Abraham, in his earthly life, was extremely rich. So it's not as simple as that. It's not simply that wealth divides these two men. And if that's not the case, then what is it that deeply divides them? 
what's the reason they're treated differently? And I think in the story Jesus tells, he gives us three clues. <clears throat> the first clue is in Lazarus's name, the fact that he is named and what his name is. So, the, the name Lazarus has a meaning. It means God helps, or God is my helper. And the name Lazarus also has historical significance. Um, the first time it's mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis, where, um, actually it's not the name Lazarus, but it's a closely related name, Eleazar. Right? They, came, they come from the same root. And Eleazar is the servant of Abraham. In uh, Genesis 15, verse 2, um, in that verse, Abraham's lamenting that he doesn't have a son and his property is going to go to his servant Eleazar of Damascus. Um, and the connection of that name, given that Abraham is also central in this story, can't be an accident. And the final thing that the name means is that just the fact that he gives Lazarus a name, the only person named in any of Jesus' stories or parables, suggests very strongly that Lazarus was known in heaven, while the rich man was anonymous. So the name is important, and whatever connection you draw from the name, the result is the same. It shows that Lazarus had a relationship with God. He knew God, and God knew him. He was a true child of Israel, a servant of Abraham. He trusted God for his salvation, and his name was known in heaven. On the other hand, the rich man had made himself a stranger to God and to God's ways. So that's the first clue to what really separates the two men is in the name. The second clue is in what Abraham says in verse 25. He says to the rich man, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. So Abraham here reminds the rich man that he made a choice. He received an abundance of good things in his lifetime and he took them all for himself. And that suggests that that rich man chose the present world instead of the world to come. That he paid no attention to eternity and that all his investments were in this present life and all the dividends had already been paid back to him. And here's the third clue. When the rich man asks Lazarus to go and warn his brothers, Abraham replies in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the strong implication is that the rich man himself did not listen to Moses and the prophets. And we can see something of that in the way that he ignored Lazarus. The rich man wasn't concerned to live the way that God had told him to live. So when we put those three clues together in this passage, they add up to this, that the rich man chose the comforts and rewards of this present life while making himself a stranger to God and God's law. He paid no attention to eternity. While Lazarus, who was denied any good things in this present life, held on faithfully to God and waited to be saved. And his faith was rewarded in eternity. And that's the real reason why after death, Jesus treats the two men differently. And we can hear in this story a sober warning for all of us. Because the rich man in this story was a Jew. He was a child of Abraham. In verse 24, he calls Abraham father because he knew he was biologically Abraham's descendant. Abraham also calls him child for the same reason. So the rich man had access to God's word in the form of Moses and the prophets. 
And he may even have thought that his wealth and prosperity was a sign of God's blessing on him. So the rich man had good reasons to think his future in the afterlife was secure. And his final punishment came to him as a terrible surprise. After he dies, the rich man finds himself in torment. And in verse 23, it says, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He lifted up his eyes and saw. That's such a pregnant little phrase, and it actually has a lot of Old Testament meaning. Because in Genesis chapter 22, that little phrase, he lifted up his eyes and saw, is used twice of Abraham's own life. So Genesis 22 is the part where um, Abraham is taking his son Isaac to bind him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that phrase is used twice in the story. First time, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place where God had commanded that he was to make the sacrifice. And the second time, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the ram caught in the thicket. He saw the ram that he could substitute as a sacrifice instead of his son. So in that story, when Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw, what he saw was heaven. He saw God's will and God's ways and the reality of his situation before God and what God wanted him to do. And here in this story, Jesus says the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw. And he too finally saw heaven and the reality of his situation before God. And it seems that for the first time, he actually saw Lazarus. He never saw him lying at his gate, but he sees him now at Abraham's side. So the rich man sees the truth for the first time, and he calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But the terrifying part of this story is that it's too late. It's too late. There's no more chance for mercy after death. A great chasm has been fixed that none may cross. So today, for us, is still a day for salvation, while we yet dwell yes. in the land of the living. But our days for salvation are numbered, aren't they? And we don't know on what morning we're going to wake up for the last time. Jesus warns us through this story that our time for decision is now. We can't count on tomorrow. And he also tells us through this story that we have everything we need to choose God. The story ends with a very powerful punchline. The rich man wants to save his brothers and he begs, If someone goes to them, risen from the dead, they will repent. But here's what Abraham says in reply. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man is mistaken that his brothers only need more proof in order for them to have faith. That's not the way it works. Abraham points to the reality of our stubborn hearts. That if we won't accept the evidence that God has already given us, no amount of additional evidence will ever convince us. Because it's our own hearts that are the problem. Because we're determined to go our own way and choose the reality that we prefer 
because we love this world and the pleasures that it has to offer us. But this kind of unbelief isn't innocent. And when we die and meet God, we won't be able to look him in the eye and tell him that we didn't know any better. We don't just have Moses and the prophets. We actually do have someone who rose from the dead. God has spoken to us, and his words are trustworthy. And if we refuse to trust them, one day we're going to run out of second chances, and our fate will be the same as the rich man's. That is the sober and terrifying warning of this story. So what Jesus gives us in this story is a bad example to avoid and a hope to hold on to. The rich man gives us the bad example. He chased after all the pleasures and comforts of this world without presenting himself to God. And so he ended up with a high status on earth, but no status in heaven. Heaven didn't know his name. Perhaps his mistake was that he didn't realize that earthly status and heavenly status aren't the same thing. In fact, they're totally different. It's possible to be very great on earth while being nobody in heaven. And it's possible to be nobody on earth while actually being very great in heaven. Not just possible, it happens all the time. The way Jesus swapped their boards shows that nothing the rich man had on earth was worth a dime in heaven. And none of Lazarus' problems on earth were any problem to heaven. As Lazarus lay in the streets suffering, the angels were following his Twitter feed. <laughs> there are some children in school who seek a high status in their schools, right? You've seen this happen. It especially happens in high school. And did you notice that their school friends are saying one thing to them and their parents are saying another? Their parents want them to succeed in the world beyond school, in the professional world. And so in that situation, again, the two kinds of success are very different, and they're almost total opposites. The way to be popular in most high schools is to break the rules, to stretch curfews, to fool around physically, and to experiment with dangerous substances. But when I think about the people who did that in my high school, Hardly any of them went on to make a good job of their adult lives. Mm -hmm. So school kids think their status now among their high school friends is more important than their standing in the adult world. And so they trade the next 40 years mm -hmm. for these four. And adults who look on in frustration know how utterly foolish that is. But aren't we as adults in a similar situation now? We're all in high school right now in a strange temporary society where behavior is governed by hormone-driven rebellion. And people look at that and admire it. But don't get seduced into thinking that high school is going to last forever. We, and don't get confused into thinking that what's cool here and now is going to be cool in heaven. That was the mistake the rich man made, and he woke up after death to a terrible surprise. Friends, we're all going to die, and we're going to go and live in a very different world. And most of what we treasure here is going to be totally irrelevant there. Our houses and cars are going to be gone. Our 
wardrobes are going to be replaced with something. Our bank accounts will be liquidated along with our IRAs, our stock portfolios and trust funds. And how much do you think it's going to matter how many Facebook friends you have or how many people follow you on Twitter? So don't waste your time investing in any of those things. Don't get distracted by the trivial and miss the eternal. Lift up your eyes and see what's coming. Think about living with Jesus forever and invest in your heavenly bank accounts that moth and rust cannot destroy. Take the warning and follow the rich and don't follow the rich man's bad example. Now second and finally, there's a hope for us to hold on to because many of us are finding the world a hostile and unfriendly place right now. Some of us are suffering like Lazarus, coping with some chronic illness or injury. Some of us are needy like Lazarus, struggling to keep up with the bills. Some of us feel outcast like Lazarus, like society has dumped or discarded us. And some of us feel voiceless like Lazarus, like no one who matters will listen to us. But Lazarus felt all those ways, and it turned out that he had a name and a status in heaven. God knew him. God heard his voice and wanted him and had big plans to provide for him eternally. And if your eyes are looking to Jesus today, then you too have a name in heaven. You might feel anonymous, but you have a name. You might feel voiceless, but you have a voice. You might feel discarded, but you have a place. You have a place with the only king that matters, the king of kings. The present reality is just high school. What does it matter? It's not going to last. Jesus knew Lazarus. He had a name. And to Jesus, Lazarus wasn't an object of pity. He was a person to be admired. Because Lazarus chose well. He lived a good life. Lazarus was dealt the world's crappiest hand. And he won the game. He held on to God. And he ended up right there at Abraham's side. And after a short, miserable life, he ended up with everything his heart wanted for the whole of eternity. And that's a life well lived.